really can't stress enough that your your membership is actually very, very important and critical and your involvement and paying attention to the legislature is important and being educated, staying proactive, you know, stay involved, being on the front lines of this. I so appreciate all of the doctors that came before us and just got us to where we are right now. And I, I absolutely respected their efforts before, but now I know firsthand what they had to deal with. And, um, um, it makes me all the more frustrated when someone um, drops their membership or doesn't want to be a member of the association because, you know, that tells me they just have no idea what we are doing as an association. Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. Today, I had an awesome conversation with Dr. Belinda Starkey. Dr. Starkey is the outgoing president of the Arkansas Optometric Association and a Vision Source member who played a critical role in the passage of the new Arkansas law that authorizes optometrists to provide minor surgical procedures, including laser surgery, to care for their patients. Dr. Starkey and I discussed some of the common pitfalls when attempting to pass this type of legislation and how the Arkansas Optometric Association overcame these obstacles. Please enjoy our conversation. And as always, if you want to get the most current episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. But first, please support those who support us. Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. One more time, E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. It was definitely a pleasure for me to to get da- to sit down and talk to you at the exchange this last week. And I was really excited to hear because I didn't know that you were a Vision Source office uh, until mm-hmm. until I saw you know your partner at, at the exchange and we were kind of chit-chatting back and forth. So I guess, you know, when you think of of how Arkansas had got to the point where they were ready to pass this piece of legislation, you were you were president, obviously, but kind of tell us about the the big picture with with your patience in mind to kind of build this um, momentum and effort to get you to the point where where you were. Well, certainly it was many years in the planning, um, and uh, obviously we absolutely had the patients in mind when we're talking about doing this, but we actually developed uh, what we called the scope team, um, and essentially that was comprised of the state legislative chair and all the past presidents through the current president covering the years that we had been discussing scope expansion. So it was uh, roughly about a seven to eight member team that was the core group that was deciding on strategy and, you know, just next steps as we were moving along. So what made it, what made this year um, the year that 
you know, it was kind of the perfect storm for you to be able to, to, um, to move on, on this piece of legislation. Well, I think we had finally developed the relationships with legislators that we needed to, to feel more confident in moving forward. Um, you know, we had potentially made some, some missteps, um, with, you know, backing some people that did not quite make it to office several years ago and, um, needed to regroup and build, you know, better relationships with those that were in office. And Mm -hmm. so we had our, we developed, you know, well, we had a key person structure in place where we tried to have an optometrist for every elected official, um, at least one person, you know, coordinating communication with them and really ramped up that effort probably about a year ago and started out by essentially just educating the legislators on what optometry was we're more than, you know, glasses and contacts. We're medical as well and um, bringing them into our offices, showing them our equipment, kind of educating them a little bit more. And uh, that really helped forge a lot of good relationships. And then as we started moving toward um, our, you know, in Arkansas, we have to file what's called an ISP or interim study proposal. So there are no basically surprises when it comes to yep. scope bills. And so we had to file that actually in the fall before the legislation or before session started. And as we were filing that interim study proposal, we started to talk more um, with our legislators about, you know, scope expansion and, and what this interim study repro- proposal was all about. Do you think, um, so I think one of the really interesting pieces here is that you know the opponents of this type of legislation tend to always say that you have to um, educate before you legislate, and yet by the nature of our licenses we we can get all the education that we that we want. We can have more training than any ophthalmologist in any one procedure, and yet we still have to go to the legislature and so in, in order for our patients, as you know, and as many of our listeners know, to have access to those services. You have to go to the legislature, and I think some of the stuff that you're that you're doing, you know, is kind of, you know, it, it gets lost. It, we forget. I mean, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but I certainly noticed it when um, when the senator, who's also the ophthalmologist uh, on that uh, piece that that we're referring to on Channel Seven, when he was in his office talking, it's it stuck out to me really obviously that his office seemed very outdated. Um, if you looked at the the where he, where he's keeping his bottles of medications and his sharp container was just on a a windowsill and and so you know and it, it was immediate and, and I said to my dad I said you know you never see uh, I mean I I just don't I don't see optometry offices that look like that and so people just sort of give the benefit of the doubt that well they're they're a physician they're a medical doctor and so they must have the most advanced technology. Um, but I think what you all did with bringing people in to show them what our practices are like, what what current optometric practices are like across the country and across the state, uh, it's eye opening because a lot of them don't don't know. And and you know, of course, there's there's different um, levels of practice and different. You know, you may may maintain your practice differently, but um, but it was I don't know if you noticed that, but it was obvious uh, to me right away. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the first thing I saw were the the bottles the, of medication sitting right behind his shoulder. And I was just thinking, well, that's yeah. odd <laughs> and certainly outdated because we don't have anything, you know, like that sitting on our countertops and uh, try our best to, you know, have a, a nice, clean, neat yep. space. And I just, you know, definitely did not get that impression from from his interview. So was he on the, was he on the, if I remember right, he was on the HHS or he was on the committee that was, uh, that was kind of trying to, he was trying to bottle this up. Is that right? Yes. He was a representative in the house and um, was, you know, basically the main opponent that we had in the legislature, obviously being an ophthalmologist. And he's also a retina Um, guy, right? He is. He's a retinal specialist. And if you um, happen to watch any of the the committee (laughs) hearings with him, he tells you several times that he's a physician and he's a retinal specialist. Um, But and like to point out that, you know, no one could have as good a judgment as he has. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, kind of frustrating. Sort of a a monopoly on judgment, right? Like you have to have an MD behind your name before you can have any judgment or any ethics. Or, Correct. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what they tried to portray. How do you think that? I mean, so so I, I we, we've certainly been through this, and um, and I, I know a lot of our listeners have been through this as well. But for the for those who haven't, how do you think that really plays? I always feel like it seems pompous, but what do you think? What, what was your perspective on how it played with the the legislators? I really do think it um, seemed pompous um, and arrogant to a lot of the. Um, know, his colleagues, Mm. because, you know, another thing that happened the day that we actually failed the first time in the House committee, he that afternoon ran retaliatory bills for um, refracting, well, had a refracting optician bill, but then also had a contact lens dispensing bill. And uh, of course, we basically got the the all call. We had literally just sat down at the table to try to have some lunch and got the call, come back to the Capitol. So mm. we, you know, jumped up and ran back to the Capitol. And as we got into the room, um, when he was presenting his bill, I could, I was eye to eye with some of the other uh, legislators at the table. And one looked at me and just kind of gave this grim smile and just shook his head like, this is obvious retaliation. Mm. I mean, they could, they absolutely could tell. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, obviously once once you kind of cut through some of the um, you know, it's really challenging. I I get why people have this gut instinct to to trust a a medical doctor. You know, from from the day you're born essentially, um mm-hmm. you you see a medical doctor and you have this kind of innate trust that that you build up with them. So, I think it's it's by default, it's natural for people to kind of say, you know, I if I if I don't know, I got two people that I know that are telling me two completely opposite things. One's telling me that this is going to be totally safe, and one's telling me that people are going to die and be blinded. Um, and the one that's telling me to die and be blinded is sort of of the same ilk of the people that I've seen since I was born. And so I I guess I'll just trust them. So it 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 is a it is an uphill battle. But once they expose that, once they once they show their um, you know their their true selves, um, then they lose that trust. And and I, I I'm just always surprised that you know after so many years of of safety of um, you know of safe expansion, so that patients have the choice to to seek care from the providers they decide to seek care from. 
that this rhetoric still really gets any traction. And I suppose like in Nebraska, for example, we have term limits. So every, at best, every eight years, we have to kind of re, you know, rebuild relationships, reeducate um, people on what we do. But, um, but it's just amazing because the predictions that, that they have just never come true. Was any of that ever brought up? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's like you said, we are trained that, you know, from early on that medical doctors are pillars of the community and we should, you know, trust what they're telling us because we're, you know, turning our health over to them every day. And um, over and over, well, one of the first pieces of opposition, um, you know, I guess, material that came out was an email to the legislators um, basically from the retinal specialist, which obviously we felt like that was originated from that representative. Mm -hmm. But several of the retinal specialists had signed off on this letter talking about, you know, how we were, um, you know, they brought up loss of life and blinding, you know, patients. I mean, that was just right out of the gate what they started out with. And it was just kind of a a head shaking moment for me because it's like, seriously, we always have heard people say that this is what they always say about us. And they're going to start out this way again. Uh, I don't know. It was just, uh, it's appalling and frustrating and just old. So I think that's really important because, you know, a lot of times we can kind of get caught up in the fact that we've got very good working relationships with individual ophthalmologists. And Mm so, um, so when you haven't been through a battle, Belinda, can you tell me when, when, um, when did you get, get out of school? I graduated in 2004. Okay. So, um, so a lot of us, if we haven't been through these battles before and it hits us right away, um, and you like, you hear about it in school, maybe, uh, you know, part of why I want to have these discussions is that, um, I think there's a lot of people that, that they don't get to hear some of these, these battles that, that people right. fought through. Um, but you might hear, uh, that, that they say these things, but certainly because I have a good relationship with, with this doctor down the street. Um, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't say those things cause they know, they know that, that those things don't happen. And yet mm-hmm. when you hear it, uh, it, it is unbelievable. It's, it's just jaw dropping. And we did have several of our, our members who were very disappointed in, you know, their referral network because these yeah. were people who they they trust with their patients all the time. And we know these doctors are trusting our judgment because we are, you know, co-managing our patients with them and for them to come out and exaggerate so much um, against us. It, it's just, it really was hurtful to a lot of our members. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I, I, I think the same thing, you know, we, they've become in Nebraska, they become kind of smart. The, um, the only people that will come to testify against us are people from outside of the state and people at the med center. Uh, so, so they, they know they don't want to ruin any relationships within the state within, you know, within, obviously if, if you can't trust me, it's really hard for, you know, for a, a relationship to be built um, right. or to be sustained, but they, they were kind of smart about that. They've been smart about that um, in, in a sense, you know, po- politically smart. But, um, you know, I, I think it's, it is important for people to understand that, 
um, you know, we've seen with with state government relations committee as we've worked with different states now, and I, I kind of articulated this to you when we were talking in Tampa, but um, it if you're not prepared for that, I think it is a real gut punch, and um, I think every state that goes for this has to be um, supremely prepared for the people will die, people will be blinded, you're not trained. You don't have, you know, our edu- they'll minimize every little piece of education we have, every right. little piece of, of uh, additional specialty training that we have, every little piece of judgment that we have. Uh, and and in, unless you know that going in, we've seen states in mass be very deflated where it's almost, it's almost like you have to kind of pull them back into the game um, once they hear this stuff. I, I've, I've been amazed. Right. Well, I will say that, you know, I heard over and over again that this was going to happen and it's still um, not surprising. That's not the right word, but I guess it's just um, you don't realize how it's going to hit you until you're in the middle of it. And um, I still was just it really didn't make me not want to advocate for the profession, but it 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 was disappointing in my, you know, colleagues on the other side. And, but it did make me want to fight all the more for our profession and to stick up for the fact that we are educated and we do have excellent judgment to take care of our patients. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, the, I think the other sense that people get often is that it, it, um, you know, especially when this becomes very public, you think that, that the public really is going to hear about it and then they're going to kind of second guess who we are and what we're doing for them. And in my experience, what happens is, yeah, it's public. Maybe some people will hear about it. Um, but, but as soon as it, it goes away, people, you know, it's, it's just not important to them, but it's hard to be in that and hear advertisements on the radio and television and feel like it's, it's not going to have an impact on, on the patient's or the public's perception of us. And yet it doesn't, it, it just seems like such a magnified effect because it's us they're talking about. Correct. Yeah. I expected the, the public, you know, the PR stuff to, to actually come out a lot sooner than it actually did. Um, I honestly think that they, you know, opposition did not expect us to ever make it out of that house committee. And so they didn't really spend much of their effort on the, the mm-hmm. PR battle and until we made it out of the, the committee and went over to the Senate side. Um, and then, boy, did they lay it on thick. I mean, there were radio ads, there were TV commercials running during the basketball tournament on ESPN, and they had like you know an all call to you know, ophthalmologists from all over the country were calling in. Um, mm-hmm. to the States. So it was, it was very impressive, the effort that they made after, you know, we were successful in the house. Um, but I will also say we had heard from many other States and, you know, of course, talking to AOA and SGRC that you, you're never going to win that PR battle. So don't play that game. Yep. Because, uh, I mean, it's certainly patients have no idea what's going on uh, most of the time uh, unless they're really paying attention. And I only had one or two patients that said, hey, I saw you on the news. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, other than that, they really didn't even understand what was happening. So certainly the effort is is better spent on educating those legislators and and worrying about what they think, not what public opinion is. Yeah, well, and I think. 
You know, the interesting part is public opinion with push polls can be swayed any way that you want the push poll to come out. And Certainly. so, um, so that's, that's one of the things that they try to do. What I thought was really interesting, I, I'm going to get the numbers mixed up, but I want to take a step back for what you said, because, you know, what, what any of these scope of practice enhancements allow patients to do is simply have the choice not to seek uh, care from another provider that they don't have a relationship with. So, you know, what I, what I always think about this is that patients always have the choice to decide they want to have a, a procedure or any treatment at all from any physician that they decide to have a treatment for, from. And, you know, by nature of our license and by nature of our, our oath that we take, you know, we're not, you know, we're not, our whole goal is to not do any harm first and foremost. And so that's followed up by the fact that none of us want to be brought to the board and none of us want to be sued. So you aren't going to practice outside the realm of your knowledge, education, and training. And you're going to make sure that you're up to snuff on all of those things so that those things don't happen because you do want patients to have good outcomes. And so now all that has happened in Arkansas is that patients can can now decide if they'd like to see Dr. Starkey for the SLT, or if they want to travel to another provider for the SLT. The same thing as, as when they decide now they want to um, receive glaucoma treatment from you, or if they want to go someplace else and establish a new relationship with another provider to have glaucoma treatment. And so, um, so I think that that piece gets missed in a lot of this with, um, you know, even, even within the, um, certainly within the, the realm of the discussion politically, but, um, you know, patients can decide not to see us. All right. I mean, they, they, they do it all the time, right? They, I mean, they see an ophthalmologist instead or they see somebody else down the street. They don't have to see us for that, that care. But now they have the choice to do it. Absolutely. I think that's important. Sure it is. And yeah, I mean, I think um, so. I, so what's really interesting to me is that if, if all these things, when, when they have these um, push polls that they come out and try to sway legislators with, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it'd be really interesting to ask those patients, the same patients, if they think that they should be able to receive an eye drop from their optometrist or an oral medication from their optometrist. Um, because they have been doing that now for in Arkansas for how many years? Over 20. 20. Yeah. Over 20 years. And they've made the choices with their, you know, with their feet by seeking that care from optometrists. And so, um, you know, so if we weren't, a, you know, if, if if our care wasn't well thought out and wasn't well managed and wasn't appropriate, then they wouldn't be making those choices. Right. I will say that they obviously um, opposition did pay for the polls to, or a large poll to happen. <laughs> and <clears throat> my impression was really the legislators see those polls for what they are. They are paid for by one side or the other. And I really don't even think that it, it influenced them a whole lot in their decision-making. Yeah, I would agree. Just just like we've talked to you guys before from an SGRC standpoint, you know, media and these push polls tend not to, you know, we can feel like we want to respond to them. And I think we have to have a response, but, um, but oftentimes our response isn't as important as just continuing to to talk about the facts and what really happens and, and how this really works. And, um, and, and the, the, 
the history of safety. Um, but it can be it can be the fact that you want to respond to the you know to those polls because well we know they're not true and we know they're they're misleading and so the gut reaction is to respond. Mm-hmm. What I really found interesting about the the polls that we've seen recently is that um, when and I can't remember the exact numbers, but you know they educate quote unquote the um, the person taking the poll with basically the American Academy of Ophthalmology's definition of optometry, which is optometrists prescribe glasses and contacts and diagnose and treat some minor eye diseases. Right. I mean, that, that's, it's just like the most basic, the most, uh, it's the minimalist definition that you could use for an optometrist uh, in pretty much the minimalist state that, in terms of scope of practice. Sure. And, um, and even that definition when you ask pa- patients, if you ask the public who they would prefer to see, it was something like only 70% would want to see an ophthalmologist. And, and 30% thought, yeah, it's fine. I, I, could, I could receive the, this, uh, these minor procedures from an optometrist even after that education, which tells me that you all have, have been taking very good care of your public. And, and patients see that for what it yeah, is. That's an excellent point. I'm I really don't, I have had patients, you know, that periodically will say, well, can't you take care of, you know, uh, yeah. this or that? And we have to say, I'm sorry, you know, we can't do that here. We're going to have to refer you to a specialist if you'd like to, you know, taken care of. And they're like, are you serious? I mean, they're so shocked sometimes yeah. when we can't take care of something. Yeah, it is nuts. You know, I had a patient today that, um, that had a Shalazian and, um, and, you know, it's right there. It's not even. It's not even a deep Shalazian. It's a. It's an external mm-hmm. Shalazian that that started as a hordeolum and and just didn't go away. And now it's just this hard mass. And you just, you know, I I've got the training to do it. I I went to school in Oklahoma. I did I did exponentially more than the minimums that ophthalmologists are, are required to do for Shalazian removals. And I'm sitting here looking at this. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. Well, it's going to take them a month to get in to see the ophthalmologist for it in, in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, this is bothering him. Um, and it's just, uh, it's amazing. It's just amazing that, that, um, that stuff just isn't, um, as, as straightforward as it is. And as, as all this, the stuff that can make it not straightforward that we're trained to make sure we're aware of, um, that it still kind of gets, you know, it gets bogged down and, and, you know, you don't really realize that it's an issue until it is an issue. As a sure. And that's an excellent point, too, because, I mean, you know, prescribing eye drops and oral medications used to not be, you know, as commonplace. And so it we look back now and we think, how in the world could I have practiced without being able to do that? And, oh. you know, moving forward, as more and more states get these privileges, you know, I think it's going to be the same kind of scenario. We're going to be looking back and saying, how in the world, you know, future students that are coming out are going to say, how in the world could you not have you know, been able to take care of your your patients to this level. I don't understand that. And I hope that is what the future holds for more of our states. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, so Belinda, talk to us, talk to me about, um, you know, you made a comment that, that, and and I sort of have kind of the, the background of what happened in Arkansas, but I think it's a very interesting story. And I think it's one that, um, is, it should be told that, you know, what happened in committee 
that um, kind of really set you back? And how did you overcome some of that that setback in order to be um, successful in advocating for your patients so that they now have the access uh, to your services? So the initial uh, presentation to the House Public Health Committee, uh, we had um, heard about some uh, initial, I guess, uh, reservations that they had about the language that we were using. So we made a late amendment right before, you know, going to that first House committee meeting to try to, you know, kind of assuage some of those reservations that they had and <clears throat> felt really good about it and then ended up having one of our uh, representatives that we felt pretty confident was a yes vote for us vote no. And that was the one vote that basically prevented us from getting it out of committee that first time. And mm-hmm. then, of course, had to go back and really leaned on our, our so, sponsor. I'm going to I'm going to yeah, I'm going to stop you for a second. Okay. What at that point, what was the, the mentality of your association of the people that were really involved in this? Um, you fail at, at one point. What's what is the, the, the thought process and the mentality of how you all felt and how you overcame some of that stuff to, to kind of bring it back? And so, work again. Obviously, immediately after that committee meeting, uh, I will just tell you personally, I was crushed because mm. of the amount of time and effort. And you honestly feel when you are in the battle and you are, you know, on the front lines and testifying, you feel the weight of the profession, not just in Arkansas, but the profession as a whole on your shoulders. <laughs> and so when you meet failure, it is crushing. And, um, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I had to go, you know, to the ladies room and collect yeah. myself for just a minute. And then when I came you hear, out. You, you think of Daniel Carey and Chris Wolf uh, on the next phone call we're going to have with you. Exactly. It's like, how am I going to talk to these guys again? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will say, you know, coming, coming out and, you know, just, I got to say, Vicki Farmer is our executive director and she is absolutely amazing. And she was already yeah. standing there with our attorney saying, okay, how do we need to adjust this language? You know, we're going to bring it back. We're going to go again. And it awesome. was just this immediate, okay, let's regroup. Let's get this done. And so that was the week that SECO um, was happening. And basically some of us stayed behind and stayed on the, you know, at the Capitol. And that was a Tuesday when we, we failed in committee and we worked the house floor on Wednesday and Thursday um, to just say, hey, here's what we're going to do. Will you be with us when we come back? You know, that kind of thing. Just kind of working on our, our members of that committee and our, our floor votes for that matter. Um, so I really, it was deflating in the moment and you just had to kind of let yourself have that, <laughs> have that minute to, mm. to feel the pressure and then just say, okay, you know what? I'm over it. Let's go, let's go back and get this fight rolling again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Did, so then, okay. So then, uh, once you, once you kind of had that, that period of, of shock and then somebody, you know, and it sounds like it was Vicky, um, you know, kind of said, wait guys, we can regroup. We can, we can, there's some, still some things that we can do so that patients have that access. Then what, what's next? How did that, how did that work? Well, we had to ensure the sponsor was still willing to stay with us, of course. And, um, he was, I mean, he was an excellent sponsor, well thought of, and, uh, we, we leaned on him to essentially guide us in the amendments that needed to be made so we could 
be successful ultimately. So we, instead of having that exclusionary language that we really was, you know, ideal, we came back with more of a, you know, an inclusion listing of procedures. And that ultimately is what made us successful. And so what, um, what are, for, for the listeners that aren't aware of the difference between inclusionary and exclusionary, do you want to, do you want to talk about that? Or do you want me to talk about that? Uh, you have way more experience with it than I do. I'm happy for you to explain that. <laughs> well, so so I think it's important because um, you know obviously you've you've made a huge step forward, and uh, you know the the goal would be that as knowledge education and training evolves, the language is exclusionary, meaning that you just have line items that say you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. But as as technology evolves, as long as it's not in one of the exclusions, then then it, it could be a part of the the practice in uh, of optometry if there's the knowledge education and training to preclude that uh, that service as opposed to inclusionary means that you know uh, the practice of optometry is this 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 and this and then anything that's outside of those things is is by nature of the law excluded from uh, excluded from the practice meaning that only the the scope of practice is only what is included within the in the word of the law um and so the the benefit is that with the language that you have the inclusionary language the language you have is really no challenge from an ag that's that's likely because the the letter of the law says exactly what you can do um whereas exclusionary language gives a lot of leeway for interpretation and adding new procedures to as as technology and training advances but you know the one downside we're aware of um is that there is a potential for challenges uh, but at the same time if uh, if you have a good piece of exclusionary language um those challenges are are going to be really hard to uh hard to enforce exactly so I'm not sure if I explained that well. I but. think you did a great job. I mean, it's essentially exclusionary language provides you the opportunity to, you know, not have to come back to the legislature every single time you want to do something new. Whereas when you have to list everything out, then, you know, every time something new comes along, you're asking, please, may I again? And it's super frustrating. Much better said. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh. There was a, in my, so I, I'm a, you don't know this, but I'm a, a hip hop fan. And, um, and so way back, you know, I, I love to, to listen to like, usually what you call it would be like underground hip hop. And my, my two favorite, um, MCs when I was in high school were, were most deaf and Talib Kweli. And they had a, an album called Black Star and it just blew my mind. But, um, but, uh, most deaf could say, um, he could say basically a thousand words with three and Talib Kweli could say something with a thousand words um, that would mean three words. <laughs> he could articulate something. And so you just, you just were, were most deaf and, and I was just Talib Kweli. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, sorry about that. I've never been compared to that. Before. Sorry about that analogy. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Anyway, that's that's everybody wants to know where my email address comes from, and that's that's where it I comes was from. wondering. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so at the time when I created my email address, I was in high school, and it was a Hotmail account, and it was like C Wolf eighty one, you know, which who cares about that? Or um, I'll just stick, you know, the first name, and the last name of my 
first uh, my two favorite MCs together, and nobody's going to have that. And they didn't, so it's stuck. I like it. It's a good story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Well, you know, I just so, want to um, mention on the the committee, the House committee, um, that structure, and you probably know a little bit of that background. We were stacked against um, medicine pretty heavily in that House committee. We had a, an emergency room doctor, we had an ophthalmologist, we had you know a staunch medical society advocate as a vice chair of the committee, whose husband is actually on the national. Um, you know, American Medical Society board. Uh, so it was really uh, quite the feat to even get it out of there in the first place. Um, so that. Well, how did you overcome that? Well, it was all about our grassroots efforts and, and the, just the relationships that our, op, our optometrists had, you know, made with their legislators and, and the sponsor that we had, I am not sure that we could have come back again unless we had the sponsor that we did. He was just absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, and he, he garnered a whole lot of respect from those, those members. So I give him a whole lot of credit. For that. Yeah. No, I think that's important when, when your sponsor is, is fully behind you and, and they should be, of course, and they can also articulate the need uh, and the reasoning behind it very well. And, and um, so choosing your sponsor is very important for any piece of legislation. You know, it was, and our Senate sponsor, I have to say, was excellent as well. We just didn't spend as much time on the Senate side because we had to get it out of, out of the House committee first. And the chair of our Senate committee was actually, um, you know, another one of medical society's top allies uh, as she was married to a medical doctor and. It was just, yeah. You know, it's really interesting because we, those of us in the in the thick of it, really felt every single time we went to a committee meeting, it was um, the cards were stacked against against us, and it came down to the last vote. It seemed like, but of course, then once we got to the floor votes, I mean, it was an overwhelming majority that that uh, you know backed us. So, what what I hear you saying, what what I think is very interesting is that. Um, in all of this discussion that we've had for the last 40 minutes, um, not once, I know you, you, you talked about the pressure of testifying, but, you know, in, in your ideas of what you remember as being pivotal, it's interesting that, that your testimony in the committee hearing um, isn't, wasn't, hasn't been on that list. Um, and so... Do you have thoughts about that? I certainly do. But do you have any thoughts about I that? I will say that, um, you know, we hear over and over again that you, that the minds are made up by the time that they get to committee. And I'm not sure if the first time that actually had happened or not um, with our, our one vote flipping on us. But um, I, I really think that that probably holds true the majority of the time, just because especially toward the end, they had heard so much about our bill. Legislators were tired of hearing about eyes. Um, and mm -hmm. the majority of the time, I will agree that I think that once you get to a committee meeting, you should have already built those relationships and educated those legislators to the point that they know how they're voting. Yep. Yep. I, I totally agree. I, you know, it's hard. It's hard because when you are gearing up for a committee um, hearing, you do feel the weight and you think about everything you could have said and how this question, um, how could I have responded to this question better? 
But the reality is, and I, I think it holds true, is the only way that that um, that those committee hearings are really going to. Um, I mean, my opinion is you're never going to win from a committee hearing, and you can lose, but you have to do a really bad job mm-hmm. to lose. Um, and you're never going to do a good enough job to win because it all comes down to the relationship. And also within that relationship, it is building, it is, is the education of our profession and the longstanding history of how we take care of patients that rules the day. But it rules the day if you have an opportunity to show that to the legislature and the legislators. Um, but, but I think we always get caught up in, in having, you know, the exact perfect words. Um, and, and a lot of people do that. And, um, and I think what's important to know is that you can have the, the perfect committee hearing and the perfect retort, but unless you have the relationships that, that, um, that you need to have, then your bill is going nowhere. I totally agree with that. Now I will say I am one that stresses over what I'm saying. Every time I get up in front of oh, totally. in front of people to speak, but um, I absolutely if you if those relationships are not present, you don't stand a chance. So you have to do the work yeah. ahead of time before you even enter session. Because if you haven't, then you might as well just think think about doing it another time because it's not going to get anywhere. Yeah, I mean it's that's that's totally true, and and. Um, and I think I think it's natural, even knowing that, right? Even knowing what I'm saying about the fact that you know the committee hearing is a formality. I think most of them, you know, like you're saying, I think most of them pretty much know how they're going to vote. Um, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. But even when you know that, um, you go into that thinking, I, I know I'm gonna, I, I gotta, I gotta knock this one out of the park, and that's good. That's okay. And there's no amount of knowing that that makes it any less intimidating or any less stressful or really even less important to us um, because it is a public, it's a public facing uh, document essentially that anybody can have access to. And if you, if you mess up, you know, that's going to be there for them to replay and replay and replay. Um, so exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking so many of the times because that is public record. And, you know, it, at least in Arkansas, they video those committee meetings. Um, and so it's out there for video forever. So um, it's certainly I, I will also say that in, at least for Arkansas, we know we knew that each committee vote Literally, we had to have 11 votes to get it out. There were 20 members on the House Public Health Committee. We had to have 11 votes to get it out. Mm-hmm. And we got 11 votes that second time to get it out. Yeah. And then in the Senate, there were eight members. And we knew two of them were going to be no. So that, mean we, that means we had to have five yes votes out of that you know, Senate committee. And when we show up that day to present to the committee – one of our yes votes was not present. So that meant that we had to have all five of those other members on that committee um, voting yes for us. And one of them had been kind of questionable. So I, I will, I would love to say that, oh, we knew how those committees were going to vote and it wasn't stressful at all, but I, I, I cannot tell you that because it absolutely, we were all stressed until those votes were cast and um, we could walk away from yeah. it. So. Yeah. And, and, and that, and you should be, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not settled until it's settled. 
And that's what I think is so um, fascinating about the story. And you and I kind of talked about this in Tampa as well, is that I think people need to understand um, that that when when states pass this type of legislation, in my experience, what I've seen is that they always tend to find a way, um, you kind of find these, you'll, you'll hit these roadblocks. And it's the states that can figure out ways they've got relationships built where um, where you can figure out a way to overcome that roadblock. Um, and And again, sometimes it stinks because you have to make certain concessions that you know, um, based on on the evidence that the overwhelming evidence that we have in states that that the, that authority exists, that that optometrists can provide those procedures safely and effectively. But you, so you know that, but it's figuring a way around that roadblock where you are making some concessions to continue to move the ball forward without making concessions that are going to significantly stifle you the the um, new technology that a profession can. Um, embrace over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, our mission statement in Arkansas is we want to preserve, promote, and advance Arkansas optometry. And the only way we were going to be able to advance that profession was by making some concessions in order to, to, like you said, move the ball forward. So, I mean, ideally we did not get everything we wanted but it was a huge win and it's a huge step forward for optometry as a whole. So you, you have to do what it takes sometimes. Now, I will take a step back and say there were, and you and I talked about this in Tampa as well, that um, we were being asked, you know, make this concession, make that concession. And um, our sponsor came back to us and said, you know, well, if I had some members say, if you report to the medical board, then we, we've got this. We can, we can you know, get this passed. And that was basically the line in the sand where we were willing to say we are not willing to move forward. There was no way that we are going to set a precedent that the you know, optometry profession is having to report to the medical board. So we basically said, you know, if that's what it takes, we're not we're done. We're stopping right here. I think that's important because uh, it can be, you know, we can kind of get this sense that, well, look, it, if the if the ends is is if the ends are what we want, then any way we get there is okay. But you know the reality is, and I, I think this is important when you haven't if you haven't thought about, and I know you have, but but just for listeners who haven't really thought about the way that that professional boards work, there's just really no professional boards that have other professions that no independently licensed professional boards that have other professions that are on those boards in majority or that they have to report to another board. So like certainly nurses, uh, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, they may have to report to a medical board, but they're not independently licensed in a majority of cases. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that is obviously changing in, in many states. But, but um, when, when we see um, the idea of having a, um, a optometric board or optometrists have to report to an entity who is not our profession um, that that does that flies in the face of every learned doctoral level independent profession that the profession can't I mean by definition the profession is is intended to govern itself not just optometry but dentistry is that way podiatry is that way medicine is that way certainly medicine wouldn't report to our board um, and and 
in many cases, patients would be better off if, if that were the case. I'm, sh- I'm sure of it. But, um, but that's, that's not how it works. And so those lines in the sand are really important. Um, and also, I, what I think is that sometimes when, when we're um, having conversations with states, um, it, it can be enticing to go down that road. And, um, and because you think, well, we can get, we can get where we want to go and then we can, we can remove this, but, um, you always want to watch out, you know, when you're, when you're passing legislation, you know, it's easy to think, well, we can just pull the plug on this, but if you don't have a tight control over, you know, if you don't have at least some relationships that you have built, you know, that legislation can get away from you very fast. And so it's always a, it's always, um, a caution to, Say, well, we'll just try this and see how it goes. Um, you know, if you get a couple unfriendly amendments on that thing, and all of a sudden people think it's a good idea, and you don't have the relationships to say it's not a good idea, then uh, then we you could change, you could go backwards. So, I mean, I know you know that, but I think that's just really an interesting observation that nobody really thinks about. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you you cannot sell your soul to to be able to you know just advance. Um, a terrible law. You you really have to do what it takes to perfect, you know, to protect the profession. Um, and you have to be very mindful of basically a trap is not the right word that I'm looking for, but you have to be very careful of, you know, setting a precedent for something that may not be immediately impactful to the profession, but somehow it could be, you know, harmful down the line. And, you know, if you're not, thinking forward and really looking out for those things, you could get into some big trouble. Yeah, absolutely. So at the exchange, so let me ask you, when, when is, when does this become, um, when is this becoming, it's a law now, but when is it, it's going to effect? It goes into effect 90 days after the session ended. So that should be sometime in uh, late July, I believe. But then the plans, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say oh, go the the state board of optometry will have to um, establish the the rules and, and regulations for the credentialing process, and um, then the rules will have to be promulgated by the legislature. So it'll it'll so be a bit be, before we actually start doing this. Yeah, probably twenty twenty. Yes, I would say. Do you think that um, that education and and updating? Um, is going to start before that, or it won't even start until until the the rules are promulgated. Well, about a third of our membership had already gone through um, the advanced procedures course, and so we had a lot of members that were investing in the education, you know, in advance. Um, but we aren't going to think that's going to be retroactive. Well, I don't know. I don't know what the state board is going to end up saying. They are visiting, you know, <clears throat> with state boards um, of the states that do have the procedures in place already. So we'll see what they end up coming up with. Um, I really hope they do uh, allow some of that retroactive education, but I, I, I don't know the answer to that yet. Yeah. And um, oh, I had I had another thought about that, but it, it has escaped me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, did you did you guys buy a laser at the exchange? <laughs> no, <laughs> we not yet. <laughs> next year, next year, probably, yeah, probably next year. <laughs> Arizona. So then, in your mind, what do you think? Um, so I, I know everybody's practice is different, and some people will be um, quicker to implement some of these things. But you know, if you think about your practice, um, you know, you and and your 
and your colleagues in your practice, what do you think, um, what do you think will be the, the most beneficial and impactful to your patients now that they have access to some of these additional services if they choose to receive them from you? Well, certainly I see, I see lid lesions every single day that, that we could be addressing. Um, so I think the most immediate uh, thing that we should be able to do is is address some of those those issues, and then it'll just be a matter of deciding. You know, we we as a practice, as a group, have not decided how we're going to move forward just yet. So that's still a conversation that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. But I would I would certainly think that some of the doctors, and I know you know some of the doctors that I interacted with that were involved in our legislative process that are that are in a more rural setting. Um, are certainly um, motivated to invest in any of it. Uh, they want to just mm-hmm. go ahead and, and get the ball rolling so they can help their, those rural patients not have to travel so far. So I really think the easiest thing to adopt, though, obviously, is going to be you know the, the lid procedures because there's not a whole lot of an investment up front that you have to do on that kind of thing. And then I think the, the lasers will probably be adopted a little bit later. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the case. Um, yeah, awesome. Well, so um, so Belinda, I want to be respectful of your time. Any any other additional thoughts or considerations that you think would be important that, that we didn't discuss? I just cannot stress enough that being an association member of both the AOA and your state association is imperative. I mean, organized optometry is the way that we are going to get things done and move this profession forward. And I don't really understand um, how, how um, optometrists are just out there not paying attention. Um, so I, I just really can't stress enough that your, your membership is actually very, very important and critical and your involvement and paying attention to the legislature is important and being educated, staying proactive, you know, stay involved. Um, I don't mean to be preaching to the choir, no, but no, no, it's, good. it's just one of those, I, you know, I, it's just, I, obviously after, um, being on the front lines of this, I so appreciate all of the doctors that came before mm. us and just got us to where we are right now. And I, I absolutely respected their efforts before, but now I know firsthand what they had to deal with. And um, it makes me all the more frustrated when someone um, drops their membership or doesn't want to be a member of the association because, you know, that tells me they just have no idea what we are doing as an association. Yeah, it's, it's, um, so I've always had, yeah, you know, my, my mentors, um, you may know some of them, but my mentors were certainly my dad, uh, Bob Vandervoort, David Cockrell, uh, George Foster at NSU. Um, I know I'm missing a whole slew of them, but, you know, I always, um, you kind of grew up hearing some of these stories. And, um, and so I, I had this kind of innate um, understanding of, of what it meant. You really can't know until you go through it. Um, but we are just, you know, the things that guys were doing. I mean, this is, we had a conversation. I know I told you about, the, about this before, but Drew Bateman and I have kind of started a, another podcast that, that actually specifically delves into some of the historical battles uh, with some of the historical figures in our profession when guys weren't even prescribing medications, you know, when they're barely able to use a drop. Last night we talked to Jimmy Bartlett. And um, and so, you know, hearing him describe, you know, what happened and how they were able to, you know, he was one of the first guys in a VA 
uh, hospital setting um, and and you know what what that kind of took in order for it to get him to that point it's really it's really important I think and that's kind of why I wanted you to share your story is that it's important to think that I agree with you you can't just be on an island um, we're not an island if if we're each advocating as hard as we possibly can for uh, for our patients and the profession, then nothing ever gets done. And so I'm always just grateful that that we get to stand on the backs of giants and that these guys so many years ago uh, decided that it was important to to do the things they did so that I can practice the way I practice. And I and I and I just I guess I don't take that for granted. And I I don't think people take it for granted. I just think we don't really think about it that often. Exactly. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I think, um, yeah, well, said. I, um, do you think, I want to ask you a couple more questions. I'm sorry. I, I was kind of going to wrap things up, but what do you think? Why do you think it is that is the case that, or at least it seems to be the case that people kind of don't, aren't involved or they, or they, um, what, what's been your experience as you've gone up through the executive committee and been on the, on the board? Um, in Arkansas, what is your sense of why people are? You know, I I think it just having not done any legislation for the profession in twenty you know over twenty years, I think people just go through their day to day and they they lose touch with you know they get complacent. I guess maybe is the best way to say that you just are going to work, enjoying your job, and you know reaping the benefits of, of that, but don't really think about well where can we go from here. And um, it's not until you actually face something new, some new technology that you'd like to do that you're like, oh, well, how do I do that? Mm -hmm. And uh, I really just think it's complacency. Do you think that there's anything generationally that, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if you're technically in, um, in, in a millennial generation, you might just be right before there, but I'm certainly a millennial. What's, what's really interesting to me, did you listen to Matt Boudreaux last year? Did you go to the exchange last year? I did not. Anaheim. So it, it kind of blew my mind that, that I didn't realize I was a millennial. I, I certainly am. Um, but I'm on the kind of later part of it. And, and his point was he, he, studies, he studies generational kinetics and is basically how generations interact with one another. And he said, the thing about millennials is that there is no other generation that is so vastly split between... Um, between their habits and, and, you know, what they're like and those sorts of things. But of course, um, the upper portion of the millennials, the, the really um, entrepreneur spirit, the, you know, um, really go-getters, those guys get no, no acknowledgement. Everybody says, oh, millennials, ha, 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 right? And then they just sort of pass it, pass it by. I mean, there's certainly mm-hmm. something to be said that millennials are, are different than other generations. But, but he said that 50% of millennials are just kind of trending upward. You know, they have more disposable income. They're making more money than any other generation ever has in that time period, you know, with their age bracket. And then, but they never get, nobody listen, you know, nobody pays attention to them. And then you have this other, um, you know, this other group of millennials, it's the other 50% that is the kind of parody for millennials, right? That, um, and so... I get the sense that most of of the millennials in our profession kind of get a bad rap, just like every millennial gets a bad rap, right? Because the, the millennials we pay attention to are the ones that are that are you know quote unquote living in mom's basement, right? 
Um, <laughs> but, uh, but the, um, so I, but I wonder if you've noticed if there's anything else that we can glean, cause I think the millennials in our profession are the ones that are trending upwards, right? I, I believe that's the case by nature of being in a profession and de- being dedicated to school and all those sorts. So, but what is it about that generation um, that we can kind of tap into to kind of help them continue to, to kind of move forward and, and kind of take the ball from the Belinda Starkeys uh, and, and kind of move it forward? What are your thoughts about that? I don't know if I have any great, uh, <laughs> great wisdom to, um, to uh, add to that, but I think I'm actually the end of generation X, I think is what they called me. But, uh, and my, you know, my perception of the millennials is probably more that negative view of millennials, I guess, Mm -hmm. because I, we've had employees that are of the millennial, um, era and certainly seem entitled and, you know, unreliable and all that kind of stuff. So the proponent that is, more the go-getters, um, I, I don't know. I would have to think they must be pretty self-motivated. Um, so I'm not, I have not studied the, the generational thing. So I'm not, I'm not a very good. No, that's okay. Conversation on that's that. okay. Sorry. No, I think, I think it's just interesting. You know, I, I, um, I wonder if it's just that, you know, for me, if, if I think back on a kind of my motivation to be involved is, is it, it it's like this sense of, of like, higher, you know, higher purpose beyond myself. And, and that's, you know, people, people were able to tap into that for me. And, and I'm really grateful that they were able to do that. Um, I, I certainly have a lot of growing to do. I can do things a lot better and, and work harder to try to kind of take the ball and, and move forward. But, um, you know, I think, uh, I think as I try to think, okay, how am I going to empower future leaders? I think it's really that. I think it's, it's taking the millennials that, that, you know, are, uh, kind of on the upward swing and, and figuring out what it is they're passionate about and helping them find that cause and then kind of sending them on their way. Uh, um, I really feel like that could be true for any person though. I, I just, uh, I mean, I almost hate to, to use the term millennials anymore just because I do feel like it is a negative connotation sometimes or most of the time. And um, if you can see a, bright star, you know, this diamond in the rough kind of, you know, perception, and you can invest in that person and pour into them and just kind of, you know, encourage them along the way. I, I really feel like that that's the most important thing rather than, I guess, giving them a certain label, if you will. Well, Belinda, I don't know if there's a better way to, to finish a podcast, but that's the way we'll finish it today. So thank you very <laughs> much. For, um, I, that, that was awesome. So Thank you very much for um, having this discussion with me. I, I truly appreciate all the work that you've done. And I know that, you know, many people across the country do as well. Do you, do you have anybody you want to give a shout out to um, that, that was really well, kind of integral with you in this, in this process? I am so glad that you said that because I was about to say I really want to thank, um, of course, our our scope team and the Arkansas uh, Arkansas Optometric Association just because I am so proud of our members and how hard they worked and basically they took the high road when it was really tough to stay on the high road and I'm just so proud to represent this organization and obviously 
we really received a whole lot of help from, you know, David Cockrell, Rich Castillo, and, um, you know, the Future Practice Initiative from the AOA, and just all sorts of support along the way. Um, Daniel Carey, um, Dana Reason, I mean, you, you name it, we had some, we had the support that we needed and we so appreciated that. So thank you all for everything that you did for us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Belinda. And, um, we'll chat soon. All right. Thank you. <laughs>